Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. We're in a world where everybody seems to believe that they can they can hold on to everything forever. And so he's really the antithesis of that world. He's a guy always with his eye on another play. And uh, that is unusual. It's really unusual right now. On November 24, 2013, Pope Francis came to the Loggia, his balcony, looking out on St. Peter's Square with a major announcement that the bones of St. Peter had been discovered, and he displayed nine of those fragments as first-class relics to the packed house of faithful gathered in the square. This was a momentous occasion in the history of the Catholic Church, as the search for St. Peter had literally been going on for 2,000 years. While the search had been going on, it went to a new level in 1939, when a Vatican worker fell 30 feet through the floor under St. Peter's Basilica and landed in a dusty and undisturbed tomb that turned out to be a network of catacombs and over 40 pagan burial tombs. Pope Pius XII immediately saw the opportunity and started an archaeological project that ultimately led to that day in 2013 with Pope Francis standing on his balcony hugging nine bone fragments. One man critical to this project was a Texas oilman or wildgatter whose involvement was only known by a select group of Vatican leaders, but whose contributions would impact the faith of millions for centuries to come. In this season of Holy Donors, we will tell you the story of a man who was orphaned at the age of seven, taught himself to read by studying the Bible, invested his last dollar to dig an oil well fueled by nothing but his own hunch, and personally bankrolled a decades-long secret dig under the Vatican to find the bones of St. Peter. Welcome to our season on George W. Strike Sr., The Wildcatter. Hey, welcome back to Holy Donors Season 4. We actually have somebody that I'm super excited to talk about, um, but I'm Matt. I'm Ren. And I'm Andrew. Thaddeus is gone again. So that was a great intro, everybody. Glad to be here again with you. I'm just curious, where are we going to start with the story of George Strake? George W. Strake was born on November 9th, 1894 in St. Louis, Missouri. He was the youngest of 10 children, and both of his parents, William George and Anna, passed away when he was very young. We don't have very firm records, but best we can tell is that his father died when he was one, and his mother died when he was just eight years old. He was raised by his three older sisters. The family was very poor, and George actually didn't even attend school. He didn't have access to books, and they couldn't afford to send him to school. They needed him to work. So what he ended up doing is he taught himself how to read and write by reading and studying the Bible. He couldn't afford books, but they did have a Bible, assuming so. And he taught himself how to do all of this. So during this time, what did he do for work? Yeah, so even as a very young boy, he worked as a Western Union runner. He made $10 a week, but he was, even at this very young age, he was a very holy donor, and he put two of those dollars into the Sunday collection basket every week. And so he didn't attend school. He had to work, but he was very smart, and he taught himself to read and write and wanted to go to college. So when he was old enough, he took the entrance exam to St. Louis University, 
scored so well on it that they gave him a full scholarship to go to school and he earned a Bachelor of Science in Commerce and Finance. So where did this come from? He's self-taught in almost everything so far, including reading. Yeah. He's got a job. He's making pretty good money for a kid. No high school education. Takes this exam into St. Louis University. Gets in on a full scholarship. Where does he get the gumption for this kind of stuff? I have no idea. We don't have any records from him when he was a little boy. You know, his parents had passed away, obviously. Uh, He had a large family, so 10 kids, and he was the youngest, so I'm sure he had to work and scrap for everything. But I think the other thing is that even from a very young, young age, he understood himself as a team of two, him and God. And it was really this commitment to his faith that propelled him and helped him get through all of these adventures in life. Wow. So all this, the steam of two, went to college, then what? So he graduates in 1917. And you may remember the United States was right in the middle or at the beginning of World War I. So he was drafted into the Army. He was sent to Florida where he became a wireless instructor in the Army Air Corps. Wait, I mean, what is a wireless instructor? I can answer that. So radio is still a pretty new technology around this time, but it was critical for the armies because they're spread out. They need to communicate for things like artillery fire, communication with airplanes and so forth. And so George was the guy who taught the pilots and the navigators and the gunners and others how to use and operate the radios in the field. He had studied finance and commerce in college, but an interesting coincidence is that there was a technical and training radio station at St. Louis University. So he may have been involved in that. We're not sure, but that may have led him to get involved with wireless in the Army. How long did he serve in the Army? He wasn't in the Army very long, just a couple of years, but he met a young lady in Florida who he was very much in love with, but she came from a very wealthy family. And George said that while he wanted to marry her, she had more money than he did, and so that was kind of a deal breaker for him. So she suggested that he move to Mexico where he could make a fortune and then see what happens, I guess. Yeah, this is really reminiscent of John Raskob, you know, going back to where he wouldn't, he didn't feel worthy to ask someone to marry him until he had so much mm-hmm. money. Uh, about the same time frame, too. So yeah. I wonder if maybe this was a, a way of thinking at that time. I would certainly say so. I mean, it's, you know, it's a different time, different culture, yeah, uh, different expectations. But yeah, I would say that for the most part, any man getting married would be expectant to be able to provide for his family. And so, you know, there was probably a little bit of ego tied into there that he wanted to be the provider and not not marry somebody who he didn't have to provide for. But he went to Mexico to get a job there. I mean, was there really a fortune to be made there or? Yes, sir. So he gets a job with Gulf Oil Company in Tampico, Mexico. And this is in 1919. And he is making $450 a month in Mexico. It seems today's money doesn't seem like a whole lot. But back then, was that comparable to what the average person made? Was that above? Was he going to make his fortune so he could marry this girl of his dreams? Yeah, this was actually quite a successful start to his career. In today's money, he's making about $7,000 a month, right? So that's, that's pretty solid. And he, he's making four fifty a month. The average American income in 1920 was $260 per month. So he's not quite, but almost doubling the average. Yeah, and he's a single guy living in Mexico, you know, working for the oil companies. All of my buddies that have ever gone overseas or gone, uh, you know, out on the rigs to work, you don't have a lot to spend it on. So you're able to make that money, sock it away, and then come back with a tidy little fortune. 
And come back to Florida and marry the girl of his dreams, right? That's what you would have thought. But at some point while he's in Mexico, he met a woman named Susan Kehoe, and they got married on September 10th, 1924. Uh, eventually, they did have three kids, George Jr., Georgiana, and Susan. Time out a minute. What was her name again? What, what's his <laughs> wife's name? Susan. Susan. Uh, so three kids. Yeah. Um, George Jr., named after the dad. Well, his father was William George, so he's, there's already a George in the family, yeah. Okay, and then uh, George Anna? George Anna, yeah. I mean, these are great names, right? We don't want to disparage any of the names. I will say that there was probably maybe a little lack of creativity in thinking of names for kids. Or maybe they just wanted to name all their kids after themselves. Maybe it was just tradition, who knows. But they get married. And so he leaves Gulf Oil and he starts doing kind of making his own deals. He has this strategy as a wildcatter where he will buy leases. So basically what it is, is you find a plot of land that you think has oil underneath it. You lease that land, you get a crew together, they start drilling. And then Georgia's strategy was if it shows that they're going to hit oil or if they even start hitting oil, he immediately goes and finds somebody to buy it and continue to operate it and make that money. So essentially, he's kind of like the middleman in this operation, but he does really well. He makes a boatload of money. He's down there for about five years doing this, and uh, he's just really successful. Along at the same time, he's also still connected with the with the United States and what's going on, and he invests in a little company called Radio Company of America, or RCA, which eventually is the company that starts NBC, the National Broadcasting Corporation. Yeah, I wonder if his involvement being a radio operator, radio instructor during World War One, is what led him to invest in RCA. Looking back, we know it had to have been a good investment and kind of set him up well for his future. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you invest well in the stock market, it's going to continue to pay dividends, especially a company like RCA that at one point was probably the dominant technological company in terms of wireless and even television production here in the United States. So he probably saw residual income from that investment far past the 1920s. So help me out a little bit, Andrew. We're post-World War One, pre-World War II, pre-Great Depression, and he strikes it, strikes oil. Mm-hmm. I mean, is making a fortune from oil. Yeah. But I mean, what are they using it for? I mean, what did, what did oil mean at that time? Yeah. Ren, you want to take this one? Yeah, so if you think back to our John Raskob season again, you know this is the time that GM is taken off. So cars are spreading around the country fast, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's one of the big, I mean, World War One is done, so that's not sucking up oil, but I mean, we're just uh, not too far out from World War Two, and more production, more oil use there. You're building manufacturing across the country, just all kinds of industrialization. Plus, yep. on top of that, you've got the kerosene lamps, too, because mm-hmm. the world hasn't turned into a, a world of electricity and light bulbs yet. We're still burning to create light at night. Right, that's that's replacing candles you know, in, the, in the last half of the 1800s going into the 1900s. You know, you think about what do all these things mean for just society, right? So when you, when you don't have to burn candles at night and you have kerosene, you can stay up later. And so people are staying up later, spending more time, family. Maybe that changes how many kids families are having. What about transportation? If you don't have to move everything by barge, fueled by coal, you know, you have trains, you have trucks, you have boats that are have engines that are fueled by petroleum, by oil, you can go further and you can go cheaper. So it 
opens up the world in terms of transportation, in terms of commerce. And then not, not even to say like oil is not just burned for fuel. Oil is used in plastics and a lot of industrial creation of different industrial products. You use byproducts of oil and petroleum in, I mean, literally everything today in, you know, computer chips and everything around you has been touched by oil in some way, shape or form. You know, he doesn't stay in Mexico. I'm assuming the little bit I do know about this story is he doesn't make the bulk of his fortune in Mexico. So I'm assuming eventually he leaves. Yeah, so he does. He leaves Mexico. And the reason he leaves is because he starts seeing the workers start striking in Mexico. And so the state actually starts coming in to take more control over the oil production process. And so Strike sees this. And he says, this probably isn't good for long-term industry and my ability to make a lot of money. Uh, Honey, I think it's time to go. So they take their fortune, which is significant. He's made over $250,000 is now in his accounts that he made just from this work in Mexico. And he goes to, you want to guess? Florida. Close. Cuba. Yeah, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Florida. So he and his wife go to Cuba where he thinks that there's more oil and he can really build his own oil empire. So he thinks it's kind of untapped territory so he can go there. Well, when he gets there, while he's setting up, he is an opportunist and he sees that he can maybe sell some cars. In the United States, the Model T is really taking off. Ford is making cars and selling them all over. But you can only get a Model T in one color. You want to guess what it is? Well, I know Henry Ford was famous for saying that you can get a Model T any color you want as long as it's black. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So George Strake is on Cuba and he says, hey, maybe Cubans want different colored cars. So he figures out how to paint them. And so he actually starts a car dealership called the Hutmobile dealership. And he starts selling painted cars. Certainly a great product today. We have more colored cars than just black, right? But unfortunately... In Cuba at this time, it didn't work out. They were there for two years. The price of sugarcane, which is the main product of Cuba, just dropped. And so Cuba actually went into a depression before the United States in 1929 did. And so nobody was buying cars. And eventually, George told Susan they need to sell everything and move back to America before they're forced to swim back. So in oil exploration, he's already got... A tolerance of risk. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like in this case, he set up a business well, a good business opportunity that was in demand, and yet outside factors still made his business fail. Do you think this affected his risk tolerance, or how do you think this affected him going forward? You know, when I was looking into him a little bit, one of the things I found was that Cuba kind of humbled him. He learned that disaster is not just the result of ignorance or poor planning, it can come from something completely out of his own control, which is really an interesting thing to learn that you can do everything you possibly can and do everything right, Mm -hmm. but still fail in your adventure. And I think this was one of those points in his life where he realized, hey, not everything's under control. Yeah, exactly. He's still operating as a team of two, and he has faith that his team will (laughs) win in the end, will succeed in the end, but it's not always the direct path that he thinks it's going to be. Is this like, if you might fail either way, you may as well fail at doing the thing that has the higher potential. Mm, Interesting point. So he leaves Cuba 
Yep. And they're going to move to Oregon. And he's going to give up on oil, and he's going to get into the timber trade. So he's going into his third industry now. <laughs> yes, I or guess fourth that. industry. Let's mm. see. We've got the radio uh-huh, yeah. instructor. Yeah. Then we have the oil wildcatter. Mm-hmm. Then we have car sales, mm-hmm. painting of new cars. Mm-hmm. Now we're going timber. Yeah, but that's kind of just a fake out because they don't go to Oregon. They end up going to Texas, which, you know, ah. why wouldn't they, right? What's, what's not to love about Texas? Of course, from the from the Texas homeboy over here. So right before they leave, Susan's mother gets very ill. And so she lives in Houston. So they move near Houston. They move to Houston so that Susan can be available to take care of her mother when she needs to. And so that's what they do. They leave Cuba. They sell everything. They move to Texas. They relocate. And now George is trying to figure out what he's going to do. So he fails in Cuba. He's on his way to Oregon. His mother-in-law gets sick. He comes back to Texas, and he's sitting there trying to figure out, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. What's his next move? Yeah, well, he's still in love with oil. You know, he made a lot of money in Mexico doing that. That was his plan. He wanted to have a $50 million oil empire in Cuba. That didn't work out, but he still loves it, and he wants to do it. So he ends up in Houston, and like he was just self-taught when he was younger, he did the same thing. He starts going to the library. He's checking out books on how to drill wells. When he was in Mexico, he was kind of the middleman. He didn't have to assemble the team. There was always this, already this infrastructure there for crews to come in and dig and do the research. But he was a lot more independent in Texas. At the same time, he loved to hunt. He loved to fish. He loved to hike. And so he would regularly go exploring around the woods around Conroe, which if you don't know Texas, Conroe is oh, yeah. about 30 miles north of Houston. So at the time, it was... Not much to Conroe. It was a pretty small town. Not a lot going on there. I think that uh, before this all started, they had about 2,500 people living in Conroe. But he finds that this is a pretty peaceful spot. And also, the other thing is that they discovered Spindletop, which is an oil well out in East Texas around Beaumont area, around 1913, I believe. So they know that there's oil in East Texas. So, you know, he's kind of got a clue that there's oil there, but he loves to hunt. And also, he's had this experience in Mexico where he's seen what geologic features to look for. So he's walking around Conroe. He's doing some hunting. He's doing some fishing. And he starts seeing this formation. And he starts seeing these signs that maybe there might be oil there. What kind of signs was he seeing? What's What caught his eye? Yeah, so there were really three different things, two involving the water and one involving the, the stone. So number one, he noticed that the streams weren't flowing the right direction. They were flowing, I think they were flowing from southwest to northeast, whereas most streams flow from northwest down to southeast. And so that was one, kind of makes you think that, all right, is there a depression underground or are there caverns underground that's drawing the water in the wrong direction? The other thing is that he noticed that the deer and the cattle that are there aren't drinking the water because it's brackish. And so it's just this nasty sort of waste of oil that gets into the streams and gets to the water. And it's hard to see if you're not looking for it, but the deer know it's there. And so they're not drinking the water. And then the third thing that he really finds that kind of seals the deal for him is the special kind of rock formation that he's seen in Mexico. It's called the Lagarto Reynosa Geologic Formation. And he sees this in this creek bed in Conroe which they'd already done some oil exploration in Conroe, but it was on the west side of Conroe and he was on the east side. But he sees this geologic formation and he is convinced with those three things, 
the streams going the wrong way, the brackish water, and the Legardo Reynoso geologic formation that there's got to be oil in in them hills. So kind of like Beverly Hillbillies, right? Where they shoot uh, what was a shotgun into <laughs> yeah. the ground and the oil. Yeah. Well, listen to up. a tale of a man named Ted, <laughs> a poor mountaineer, barely fed, sustainably fed. <laughs> then one day he was shooting at some coon, and up from the ground came a bubbling crude <laughs> oil that is Texas gold. That's pretty good, huh? That was pretty good. Good job there, Andrew. Okay, good. But so he was a wildcatter at this point in time. So was yeah. he planning on doing the same thing, which is, you know, finding it, drilling it a little bit, and selling it out to somebody else? Excellent question. So he's he's reading up on some library books, but he probably still doesn't feel totally confident to just, like, go build a rig and drill 5,000 feet under the ground. So he's looking for some partners. Um, there's a lot of oil companies in Texas already, and he just needs one of them to give him some money. Well, do they give him some money? Uh, no, and down to his last dollar, turned down by eight different oil companies, George, at this point, is desperately trying to make something happen. After some time in prayer and wondering what to do next, he asks his wife to do something crazy. I don't know if I like where this is going, but what what is this crazy thing that he asks his wife to do? You'll have to wait till next episode. Oh, man. Okay. Can't Can wait. Can you wait? <laughs> <laughs> Is your organization looking to construct a new building, add more staff, or grow your programming with a capital campaign? Let Petrus Development guide you through this transformative journey. As a Teach to Fish organization, we empower you not only for today, but for a sustainable future. Our services include comprehensive campaign preparation and management. We'll craft your campaign's identity, plan events, and design compelling materials. Plus, we assist with major gift solicitations, identifying key donors, and coaching your team for success. But it doesn't stop there. We'll help you wrap up your campaign seamlessly, ensuring pledge fulfillment and effective stewardship. We'll even guide your transition into an increased annual fund, ensuring your success doesn't just end with the campaign. At Petrus Development, we're not just consultants. We're partners in your mission. Let's create something extraordinary together. Are you ready to make your dreams a reality? Sign up for a free 30-minute consultation to explore how Petrus Development's campaign services can elevate your organization. Discover the difference at PetrusDevelopment.com campaign. Your dream of impact awaits. Let's make it a reality together. Visit PetrusDevelopment.com campaign. Not big in stature, but seeming bigger for an almost mystical air of resolution. This man drove his stake farther and farther into the ground until it had pierced the innards of a sleeping monster who would awaken with a roar that would shake the countryside. A monster who would belch millions of barrels of black, rich, crude oil that would awaken Conroe to a rip-roaring prosperity, the like of which had never been seen before. That day, as he planted his stake in the ground, he stood alone. So Andrew, you teased this episode with George making a deal with his wife, Susan. Now I know what the deal is. And for the listeners, I want to, I want to prep it up just a little bit of this would scare the pants off of any husband anywhere at any time. Uh, you're not wrong about that. So again, George had a premonition to drill around Conroe because the rivers were running the wrong direction. 
the cattle and the deer were not drinking the brackish water, and he recognized the Lagardo Reynoso geologic formation just like he had seen in Mexico. So he goes out, he leases 8,500 acres around Conroe, but he doesn't have any partners. He's turned down by eight oil companies about going in like he had done in Mexico. Remember, he was just the middleman. So this was going to require him to do it independently. And he had just enough money between his savings and an investor from Mexico to do it. But his wife made him a deal. She said, I'll tell you yes under one condition, George. If you hit like you think you're going to hit, you will never complain about what I spend ever again. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) So George gets to work. It's a wild time in East Texas. The, like I said, Spindletop was discovered in 1901. So there were a lot of people looking for oil out in East Texas. And they'd actually declared martial law and brought in the National Guard to keep order because too many people were breaking into the oil fields and stealing oil at night. So George spends months assembling a team and spends months assembling a rig. His whole idea is that they have to drill deeper than 5,000 feet, which was basically like as deep as oil companies were drilling up to that point. But I mean, this was extreme. This was what you're saying is, is this is beyond what they've ever done before. Correct. And they needed a special kind of rig and they needed uh, a special kind of oil well. And the one that they needed actually had three boilers, which propelled the, the drill. And each of these boilers weighed 30,000 pounds. But in order to get them to where they needed, they had to go over, there was a single bridge they had to cross that had a 5,000 pound limit. So George and his buddy ended up sitting under the bridge one day and one night waiting for a loaded down cotton truck to drive across because a cotton truck loaded down was about 20,000 pounds. So the first time one goes across, it rattles the bridge. You know, they're literally like hanging out under the bridge, the whole thing's shaking. It gets across and his buddy looks at George and says, well, it made it. And George says, all right, let's do this. So they go. Many stories of my childhood started out that way. Yeah. So they load up the boilers and they take him across in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. So the police wouldn't pull him over and stop him. He also needed a special kind of driller because drilling this deep needed somebody who was really skilled. So as stories go, there was a guy named Harvey Lee, but... George didn't know where to find him. So he literally drove from camp to camp asking about Harvey Lee. Finally, somebody pointed him to this trailer. He goes up and there's a woman there and he says, I'm looking for Harvey Lee. Do you know where he is? And what do you think her response is? Who's asking? asking? You answered that pretty quick, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, a lot of stories from my childhood. So, so George says, it's me, George Strake. I'm trying to drill a well. I think we were going to make a lot of money and I need Harvey. So, of course, she says, oh, yeah, he's in the trailer. Come on out, Harvey. So they get a team together and they start assembling the rig, but they are operating on the cheap, right? This is like all of George's life savings. And so they have to burn wood instead of burning coal because that burning that builds up enough steam in the boilers and it powers the drill. But there was another problem. It actually wasn't burning hot enough because at some point in there, A forest ranger had come out and said, hey, guys, if you're going to be burning wood, you need to put these filters on top of the smokestacks to keep the forest from burning down. But it wasn't burning hot enough. And so one of the workers told Strake, "Uh, so I think I can fix the problem, but I need you to go to town for a little bit and then come back. So Strake says, okay. So he goes to town. 
He comes back and everything's working much better. And George said, uh, what happened? He said, well, take a look. And he had fired a shotgun through the filters <laughs> to open them up to let enough air come in so they could run the boilers at a higher temperature. But even with the filters, so the filters were there to protect the forest. Even with the filters, they were constantly lighting the forest on fire with sparks coming out of the out of the fire, out of the boilers. And so multiple times a day, they had to shut down all operations and actually put out the forest fires. So there was a lot of work. It was constant. And keep in mind, there was no guarantee that any of this was going to work. This was all George Shane. I think that this is there. I see these clues and we just need to continue to move forward. So this sounds like a big risk. How is he motivating all these people to help out with this project that may or may not even succeed? Yeah. So a couple of the people he's making deals with, you know, he needs people to transport the timber. He needs people to operate the rig. He needs people to recruit other workers. And in some of those cases, he's actually making deals where he's giving away like 10 acres or 20 acres. And so it's almost like equity in the dig. So if it hits, then they'll get rich. And we'll tell you the story later, but suffice it to say, George Strait makes a lot of people really rich by giving away 10 and 20 acres at a time. Which is a smart way to do it because he didn't have a whole lot of money to begin with. Correct. So if he were to pay people off, that's a higher expense. He didn't have the money to do it. So he would start shaving off this equity in order to bring people in where he would lose less on the downside, but also have to give quite a bit away on the upside. Yeah. And I think if, if you look at the timing... This might be a buyer's market for somebody who's looking for lots of people to help them potentially strike it rich, right? This is the Great Depression yeah. when you've got lots of people out of work and they'll take a risk on, I'll, I'll take a share of land and put it in my sweat equity here. So it's kind of funny. Other companies have used this technique as well, a lot of startups. And there's this pretty popular story about Facebook when it was getting started. They wanted somebody to come in and paint a mural in their offices. And so they found this guy in Los Angeles and he said well, yeah, I'll, I'll paint you a mural, but I don't want you to pay me. I want equity in the company. And so they ended up giving him like a fraction of a share in exchange. And I mean, we all know Facebook, one of the most highly valued companies in the world. That guy made a lot of money for painting that mural. Oh, yeah. So same thing with these folks that George is recruiting. So December 13th, 1931, which is a Sunday, is a big day. Strake is attending mass at Sacred Heart in Conroe, and one of the roustabouts comes and gives Strake a very important message. We've hit a gusher, he said. Strake's response is, I'll be out when mass is over. And that's just the way he is. God put all that oil and gas down there for all those years. He thought it could wait until after mass. So December 13th, George Drake number one, oil well, hits. And actually, according to the history of Sacred Heart Parish, Strake donated most of the money to build a new church after he made it rich, but that was just the way he is. The story about him being at mass, and this is what he's been working for for months and really for years, it hits, and he doesn't immediately jump up and run out to it. He says, hold on, I'll be there when mass is over. The oil can wait. That had to be hard. I mean, if if you sunk everything you have, all your hopes and dreams are in there, and someone says, hey... Uh, by the way, everything you ever wanted and dreamed about is uh, come true. Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. I think it really shines a bright light on on how important mass and, you know, that second person in his life that he depended upon, which was which was his faith, which was God. Yeah. I think that that's really an interesting story that points to how important he was yeah. to George Strait. Totally. So did word spread pretty quickly about this strike? Yes. So in 30 days... 
of December 13th, the population of Conroe went from 2,500 people to over 15,000 people with people flocking to Conroe looking for work and trying to get in on the oil action. George leased 8,500 acres. So he basically like had the entire plot to himself and these pieces that he carved up, but that didn't stop people from trying to get in on it. And, you know, we're talking about martial law. I'm sure there was a lot of shenanigans going on at this time, but he continues. So they start a second well, June 5th, 1932, George W. Strake number two hit and immediately begins producing over 10,000 barrels a day. I don't know a lot about oil, but that seems like a lot to me. That is a lot, a lot of oil. You know, I'm, I'm from Oklahoma. This is kind of a way of life for a lot of us here. And I know a lot of people that are in the oil business, uh, either uh, small levels or large levels. You know, a lot of small operators, when I say small, I'm talking, you know, private investment. A 20 barrel a day oil well is is a good oil well that produces day in, day out for somebody. That's 20 barrels a day. We're talking 10,000. A fantastic one may be somewhere around 25,000 barrels a day. Jeez. And really, you don't hear about those hardly anymore, but 10,000 is a ton. Yeah. I mean, do the math. I mean, You went through and looked at a lot of that math. Yeah. So the price of oil in 1931 was around $14 a barrel, right? 10,000 barrels a day, that means that they're making $140,000 worth of oil every single day, which translated to today's money is about $2.5 million a day. Over the course of the year, you're talking about $51 million in 1931 dollars, which t- translated today is almost a billion dollars a year just from that one well. And this is all from somebody who risked everything. Yeah. I mean, if he lost, he was down to begging for food. Yeah, I mean, that... That's the nature of being a wildcatter, right? Can I ask a question? I'm the token northerner. I didn't grow up with any of this this oil lingo. What okay. on earth does wildcatter even mean? Okay. All right. So you know what a wildcat is, like a lynx or a puma, right? Indeed. Yeah. So imagine going out and trying to take possession of a lynx. Good luck. Yeah. It's kind of a risky <laughs> move, right? So literally, that's where they get the term from. It's about as risky... Doing operations like this, particularly in the oil field, is about as risky as trying to go out and take possession or grab hold of a lynx in the wild. Is the risk from just the chances of hitting oil versus not hitting oil, or are there other factors involved too? So there's a lot of risk because like we were talking about with George, he put all of his money in. And if he hits a dry well, or let's say it produces for a week and then it never produces again... He's out. He has not recouped any of his investment. So you can literally go broke as a wildcatter if you put money, your own personal money especially, into one of these projects and it doesn't hit. There's also just literally physical risk as well. And in fact, there was an incident in 1933 where a well blew out, which means that it exploded and it created lots of fires, which they had to put out, and it created this massive crater. And so the only way to put out the fire, the oil was literally burning, is Strake brought in this guy, H. John Eastman, and he drilled the first directional well in Gulf Coast history. So what that means is instead of drilling straight down like you would in a typical well, he actually drilled at an angle from a couple of plots over and into that well. And so they were able to close off the part that was burning and then send the well out this directional pipe, which incidentally, that's the same technology they use today in fracking, which has allowed the oil industry to 
be able to harvest oil in other places around the country, in the north, especially in the Dakotas, other places in Texas that they thought previously they weren't going to be able to get oil out of. So what did Strike do next? Now he's wealthy beyond all measure in the middle of the Great Depression. Yeah, so Strake becomes like one of the top three wealthiest men in all of America, literally overnight. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. The Conroe oil field, just to put it in perspective, still stands as the third largest oil reserve found in the United States ever. So Strake is super wealthy now, but he doesn't really kind of fall into the caricature of the Texas oil man. Oh yeah, like the 10 gallon hat. Yeah. The uh you know the the character from Dallas. Yes. White uh white yes. suit. Who's that JW? Allig- yeah, alligator yeah. shoes yeah. and <laughs> Yeah. You know, so silk shirts. Yeah. So this this caricature of the Texas oil man was actually more popular overseas, but that was it's funny. Like even today in the 2020s, you know, if I talk to somebody from outside of America and I say I'm from Texas, Immediately, they're like, oh, do you have a cowboy hat? Do you ride a horse? No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I have a cowboy hat. I have boots, but uh, they're not required. But do you have a horse? No, no horse. Oh. No. But that's the image that the cowboy and then the Texas oil man kind of has created around the world is this caricature. George Strait never really fell into that. What was important to him after becoming wealthy was the same things that were important to him before. It was going to church. It was reading his Bible. It was being faithful to his wife. It was raising his kids. It was generally keeping a pretty low profile, especially at this time. So his oil operations continued to spread into coastal and West Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, the southern states, and really as far north as Michigan and Nebraska. At one point, his oil fortune was estimated to be valued between $200 and $500 million in 1930s dollars. So I teased out at the beginning about this deal that he was going to make with Susan about how it would scare any husband mm-hmm. uh, anywhere at any time. And we know that it was shopping that if he hit it big, he would not question her yes. on her spending You know when she goes shopping. Yes. So did she follow suit? Did she follow through with this deal? Uh, yes, most definitely. So she became a very <laughs> prolific shopper and was actually known internationally for her shopping. In fact, there was this funny joke. Her relative joked later when Susan died that department stores in Houston flew their flags at half mass that oh day. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> but I guess if you if you're hitting you know ten thousand barrels a day or yeah. more, uh, yeah. maybe you you've got a few dollars to spend. Yeah, but Susan was also an incredibly social person. So George was totally fine leading this quiet life, but Susan had no intention of that. They threw parties. They hosted celebrities and dignitaries. Later in life, they talked about having parties with folks like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, probably Danny Thomas (laughs) at some point in their life. And it was probably because of this and her that she made George more well-known outside the oil community than really he ever had any intention of being known. We heard back in the Rascob season, season two, that his philanthropy kind of caught the eye of the church of the Vatican. Did the mm. same thing happen here with George Strake? Uh, yes, absolutely. So from the very beginning, you know, he immediately put money into Sacred Heart there in Conroe to build a new parish. He's still giving money away at a very rapid rate. Now, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but his giving is incredibly anonymous. He never wants anybody to know that he's giving. Now, that all being said, he's recognized as a very faithful Catholic, as a very wealthy oil man from Texas, 
And he, it's not like Raskop. He didn't find out about it by opening Time magazine. But George Strake was also inducted into the Knights of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta in 1940. And before that, he was decorated from Rome as Grand Cross of the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre in 1937. So, yeah, he definitely got the eye of the Vatican at that time. And here's where the story gets really interesting. In 1940, a young priest named Father Walter Carroll showed up to meet with George Strake about a new project. The Pope, Pope Pius XII, needed a very special man to help him with a wildcat project that would change the course of history, and he was hoping that George Strake was just the man for that job. What was the project? Well, Ren, you're going to have to come back next episode to find out. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Want to learn how to give a great toast and mix the perfect liturgically correct drink? Want to hear about fascinating saints from the popular to the obscure and the cocktails that remind us of them? My name is Mike Foley. Join me and my wife, Alexandra, on the Drinking with the Saints podcast. One part bartender's guide, one part lives of the saints, shaken well and garnished with good cheer. Find Drinking with the Saints wherever you listen to podcasts. How would you like to go to a guy and say, look, uh, we got this project, it's completely secret. Nobody will ever know you were involved in any way. It may fail, and by the way, I have to tell you, it failed twice before. Fifteen twenty-four and fifteen forty, but we'd like you to put an unlimited amount of money into the project if you would. Now that was actually a great story. It's super intriguing. Where does it come from? Okay, so that was a clip of John O'Neill, who's the author of the Fisherman's Tomb, which was one of the source materials we used for this whole story. But what he was referring to is that meeting in 1940 between Father Walter Carroll and George Strake in Texas. Basically, in 1939, a worker in the Vatican falls through the floor under St. Peter's Basilica, falls 30 feet and lands in a secret underground tomb that they don't know how big it is. They don't know what's in there, but they're fairly confident based on tradition that that's where the bones of St. Peter lie. And Pope Pius XII is intent on figuring out if that's where it is. He needs money for it, so he sends Father Walter Carroll to meet with George Drake. Time out. So you're saying almost 2,000 years after St. Peter's death, one of the most important apostles, we have no idea where his bones are. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of crazy. So uh, let me give you like a Reader's Digest version of the history of St. Peter and St. Peter's bones. So in AD 64, Peter, this is the same St. Peter who... Jesus said, leave your fishing job and come follow me. He tells him to step out and walks on water in the storm. Same Peter that denies Jesus three times the night of his persecution. And the same St. Peter that Jesus gives the keys and says, upon this rock will I build my church, right? So he's doing ministry. He comes back to Rome in AD 64, right when Nero is taking advantage of a fire that really ravaged the city to persecute the Christians. He sees the Christians as this kind of crazy cult that's dangerous to the empire, and so he starts killing Christians. And Peter and Paul are two of the most prominent Christians that he executes. Peter is crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. And he's crucified right outside the circus of Nero. 
And when he dies, some of his body's discarded, but some early Christians find it and they recover it and they go and they bury it on Vatican Hill, which at the time was kind of outside the city as outside the Roman walls. And so there wasn't really anything on Vatican Hill. So that happens in AD 64, right? For about 250 years, Christians are persecuted, they're killed, they're fed to lions in the Colosseum, they're exiled. It's not a it's not a great time to be a Christian. And so one of the things that those Christians do is it's a secret about St. Peter's bones because they feel like if the Romans figure out where they're buried, then they're going to dig them up, they're going to desecrate them, and they're going to do kind of persecute the Christians for even following them, but they're going to destroy the bones. Which is kind of crazy because, again, we've got, we're talking Peter, one yeah. of the most important figures in the early church. His bones, in my mind, seem to be maybe one of the first ones that they try to find and desecrate. Correct, yeah. So it's a big secret, and there's actually, we'll talk about it later, but there's actually some rumors that the, some of the Christians actually come and they move the bones because the Romans might have found out where they are, so they move them. So anyways, around the year 300, Diocletian comes in and starts the Great Persecution and really kind of ramps up the persecution of the Christians, burns churches, destroys documents. Really, anybody who's got any association or affiliation with the Christians is killed, is exiled, is tortured, and that's when it really is important that nobody knows where Peter's bones are buried. Right after that is Constantine. And Constantine has this conversion in part thanks to his mother, Helen, and he really becomes a protector of the Christians. And even so much as he starts building churches, he becomes a sponsor of the Christian faith. And one of the first churches he builds is... St. Peter's? St. Peter's Basilica, (laughs) right there on Vatican Hill. Exactly. So Constantine or Helen, we don't exactly know. Somehow they find out that that's where the bones of St. Peter are allegedly. And so they build the first, very first St. Peter's Basilica right there, perfectly situated over where tradition holds the bones of St. Peter are buried. That's where the first St. Peter's, they call it Old St. Peter's Basilica. In the 1500s, they actually tear down St. Peter's Basilica because it's in disrepair. Pope Julius actually starts the new St. Peter. It's kind of added on to, they bring in Michelangelo, paints the Sistine Chapel. So for about 120 years, they're building St. Peter's. And that's when they build the dome, which was the tallest dome in the world at the time. But it's all done with this sort of idea that it's built over the bones of St. Peter. Now, that all being said, nobody wants to actually dig underneath and figure out if that's where St. Peter is buried. Why would that be? Okay, so it's a good question, and it's hard to know exactly, but this is what most of the experts have said. There were other attempts. In the 15th century, some of the popes dug, and they they didn't find the bones. So some of the popes and some of the Christians and some of the leaders felt like, if we keep trying this and we keep coming up dry, eventually this is going to have kind of the reverse effect of what we want, right? It kind of go back to Strake when he's drilling wells, if they keep hitting dry wells, he loses his sponsorship, right? And he loses support. Like nobody's going to invest money in him to drill wells if everything he hits is dry. And so the fact that it happens a couple of times in the 15th century, they say, maybe we need to stop digging for St. Peter's bones and just sort of keep with tradition that they're there, build the church, tell the faithful, this is where Peter is buried and everybody is none the wiser if we're right or we're wrong. But you're saying, even though they dug and 
came up dry wells, so to speak, or, or dry tombs. They couldn't find Peter when they dug in the 1500s. What you were saying earlier is a gentleman in 39 fell through the floor yes. into something. Yeah. So in 1939, Pope Pius XI dies, and his wish is to be buried underneath the altar of St. Peter. And so they're starting to go in and they're preparing for a tomb. And while they're digging, a worker falls through the floor, falls 30 feet and lands in this giant cavernous underground crypt. They call it the necropolis. That sounds like a scene straight out of Indiana Jones. (laughs) (laughs) It does, doesn't it? Yeah, he falls down and then a giant boulder is unleashed and starts coming down. And then he dies out of the way and then arrows shoot out from either side. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so he falls under and now... Pope Pius XII, who's the living pope at the time, he has to figure out what do we do with this information? Do we keep digging or do we cover it up and do what popes before had previously done? So Pope Pius XII is a lover of history, kind of like myself, right? And he isn't really okay with not knowing, but there's like a massive clause to this. He doesn't actually want anybody else to know that they're digging and they may have found this. Why wouldn't he want anybody else to know? So a couple of reasons. Number one is, again, it's this idea of you don't want to keep tempting fate and teasing the faithful. And so he wants it to be done in secret. The other reason, though, just much more practical, is this is 1939, and there's a guy named Adolf Hitler and the Nazis who are starting what will ultimately become World War II. So there's already like this heightened sense of fear. You look back at the age of Diocletian, this great persecution. It's no secret that Hitler has no love for for people that don't agree with that the Third Reich is basically God, right? And then you've also got Mussolini who's coming to power with the fascists, which is all about state control and you know the state is going to take care of you. They're not friendly to the Christians. So I think there's a part of Pope Pius that wants to keep it a secret so that those people don't find out and kind of reignite this persecution and they come in and they destroy it. So if he, if he goes forward with this plan to research and try to figure out if, if Mm -hmm. Peter is buried in this area that they just by happenstance fell into, that's going to take some effort, which means it's going to take some money and it's going to take people to get it done. So upon early searches, they realize that what they're actually finding are pagan tombs. The Roman leaders, Roman lords who had died and had been buried there. The space is huge. It's over a million cubic meters. You said one million cubic meters? Yeah. Fun fact. I like to tie things back to previous seasons. Season two, we talked about John Raskob, who built the Empire State Building, which by itself is a pretty common unit of measurement if you mm-hmm. look at big things. The Empire State Building is just over 1 million cubic meters in volume. Holy so that's about, smokes. That's, that's the scale of this excavation. Wow. Ultimately, they find, you know, at the end of the day, they find somewhere around 40 different pagan tombs, walls, multi-levels. And so in order to do this, and especially to do it in secret, they're going to need money. And they need money from the right source. So that's where Pope Pius XII sends Father Carroll to Texas to meet with George Strake, who is a wildcatter. He's willing to take risk. He's a digger, right, which is what they need, somebody who understands that. And what they think they know and what they ask ultimately is, will he give all this money in secret? So I think we have another clip from John O'Neill that kind of talks a little bit more about that ask. The proposal was, look, this is Father Carroll, an emissary of 
Pope Pius XII, and he has a project, the most secret and most important project of the Catholic Church, and he would like you to finance it. He doesn't know how much it'll cost, and it may fail. Well, you have George Strait, the perfect donor for that project, because, of course, he wanted everything to be kept secret. And second, he was a wildcatter. This is a guy used to taking tremendous risks, and particularly drilling underground. And so I guess that's why they picked him. He had already been deeply active in giving money to the church at Rome in securing the North American College in 1937 and other projects. But that was sort of the capstone of what he did. So, wow. That's all I can say is wow. <laughs> I mean, if, if there was any any human in history that I'm aware of that would be the perfect fit for a donor for this project, hmm. it's George Strake. I mean, uh, he, he fits it perfectly. Yeah, it's exactly right. These are the couple of components of this ask. It needs to be anonymous. The Pope doesn't want anybody to know that they're digging. It needs to be unlimited because they don't know how much this is going to cost. And it needs to be done with the understanding that it could fail wildly, which it has done twice before. So it's a pretty bold request. And I would say that that probably puts Father Walter Carroll in like the Mount Rushmore of development officers (laughs) (laughs) for the Catholic Church. The fact that he got George Strake to agree to this gift. But he does. So George Strake says yes. So the digging continues from 1940 until 1945, they start digging under the basilica and uncovering all of these tombs and all of these treasures. So the people that are put in charge of this, there's a Monsignor Ludwig Koss, who is kind of a diplomat within the diocese. He's a savvy politician. He's capable of working behind the scenes, finding pragmatic solutions to serious problems kind of a guy. And he's put in charge to head the secret excavations by Pope Pius XII. There's another guy, though, Father Antonio Ferrua, who has a little bit of background in archaeology, but I don't think that I would say that he's like a, a master archaeologist. Yeah, didn't he just graduate? Yeah, so he had some experience, right? But he's certainly not, let's just say this, the way that John O'Neill describes this is that they do a very hard job very poorly. Right, So they're not really implementing proper archaeological practices. I mean, they're not cataloging anything. They're not taking pictures. You know, when they come to walls with frescoes and things that are pagan, in many cases, they're just kind of blasting right through them and destroying them because all they're really looking for, they're looking for one thing. They're looking for St. Peter's bones. And they know exactly where they're supposed to be based on where St. Peter's Basilica is made. And so... They're not really caring about anything else. And so there's even situations where there's bones in a wall or there's a a tomb and the workers just leave the bones there. They move on and they keep working. Now, I will say the conditions are very hard. This is in Rome, underground, and they're not allowed to use any power tools. They're using shovels, pickaxes. They aren't allowed to bring in any real excavation experts because they want to keep this secret. So they really just use Vatican staff. So they're kind of like training custodians and and maintenance people to be able to do this really tough work. And like I said, Ferua doesn't really have a background in this. Now, I will also say the archaeology, you mentioned Indiana Jones. That's kind of like the style of archaeology at this point. They're not doing carbon dating. They don't really have fancy tools. It's really about in some cases, kind of glorified treasure hunters. And to some extent, 
that's kind of how Faru is approaching this is he's trying to find the treasure and if there's damage done in the process, so be it. We're going to find what we want. So as they're digging their way toward where St. Peter's tomb is supposed to be, did mm-hmm. they find anything of interest that they did note or save or catalog? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the things that they found is they found a mausoleum belonging to the pagan Valerius dating to the second century AD. And on the wall of this, they found crudely drawn image of Christ marked with the ancient symbol of the Phoenix and next to it, a balding bearded male figure in rough Latin script were the words, Peter, pray Christ Jesus for the holy. So this was the first mention of the apostle that they found in the area excavated underneath the basilica. And that is from a book called The Bones of St. Peter, which was written by Margarita Garducci, who we'll talk a lot about here in a few minutes. So another thing that they find is a narrow passageway between two of these pagan mausoleums. And what initially is an insignificant marble grave was uncovered and relocated. And underneath the ground panel was a hole leading to a tiny burial vault. Inside these walls offered beautiful Christian mosaics. It showed Jonah swallowed by the whale, showed a fisherman snagging a catch on the line, saw the good shepherd with a sheep on his shoulders. And on the ceiling is a depiction of Christ driving the chariot and the rising sun, serving as a daily reminder of the resurrection. So even though most of what they're finding is pagan, they're finding kind of these little bits and clues of Christian writings, which again, remember how I talked about earlier, being a Christian when most of these tombs were being made was criminal. And so many of these inscriptions, many of these drawings were kind of done in secret. And if the Romans had found out many of them, they probably would have destroyed them and whoever created them probably would have been killed or tortured. You know, what blows my mind about this is Peter's Basilica is built on top of this, this huge necropolis and beautiful necropolis. And nobody had a clue that it was down there. I mean, that just blows my mind. Yeah. And what blows my mind is that these are symbols drawn, what, 1800 years ago, probably. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty recognizable as Christian symbols, even to us today. Yeah. And so I know where you're leading us because you said this was between 1940 and 1945, all this excavation and mm-hmm. what they found. Yep. But we all know what kind of happened at the end of this time frame. Did World War II affect any of this? Yeah. So even though they were intent on doing this, Strake is funding it. Pius is committed to this. You've got the three amigos who are kind of leading the charge. A real enlightening story about how they're getting the money is, remember, I don't know if I told you this, but Father Walter Carroll was born in Pittsburgh. Okay. So he's an American and George Strake is in Texas. In order to get the money from Strake in Texas to the Vatican, they actually opened a bank account in Pittsburgh just kind of a totally anonymous, nondescript bank account. And George Strake would just make deposits to it as often as he needed it. So Father Carroll would actually make the withdrawals from that Pittsburgh bank, take them to the Vatican, and then use that money to pay for the excavation. So it's not like today where Strake could just Venmo Pope Pius, right? Or, you know, there wasn't online giving back in the 1930s and 1940s. It required a little bit of finesse and secrecy just to be able to fund an operation like this. I'm guessing he couldn't hop on an airplane either and fly there to get it. So you're talking about during World War II, right? So that's the other point that I want to make, though, is that even though they're all focused on this project, there's a war going on. And there's a lot of other things that are keeping the attention of the Vatican leaders 
and everybody else involved. So we're going to make a little deviation from the story of the search for St. Peter's Bones and tell you about some of these other projects that the three amigos, who we already know Father Walter Carroll. We also have Father Joseph McGuff, who the two of them are really two of the only Americans that are serving in the Vatican this time. Father McGuff was from New York and Father Carroll is from Pittsburgh. And then the third of the three amigos is Monsignor Giovanni Montini. You may recognize that name. He ultimately becomes Pope Paul VI. But at this time, the three of them are really kind of the, they take on a lot of projects of the Pope and the Vatican that need to be done. And so we're going to hear from John O'Neill about some of those projects that they're working on. A woman sent us a picture. And when you see the picture, it looks like it's a picture, I'll say 10 or 12 priests. They're all in Catholics. They've all got uh, rosaries hanging down and then black hats. And they're just, I mean, you would say this is a group of uh, priests, right? And she said, you know, uh, see this picture? This is my grandfather. And none of these guys are priests. They're all uh, Jewish doctors and interns. And they were all hidden at the North American College. And then Strike hadn't given the money to the North American College. Why wouldn't be here? So we all know that the Jews are being persecuted, right? Hitler and the Nazis are really persecuting any minority group, but the, the Jews in particular. So over the course of the World War Two, the Vatican, even though they had this arrangement with the Nazis, this Reichskonkordat, which basically said that the Vatican wouldn't condemn the Nazis if the Nazis wouldn't destroy the Vatican. I mean, that's really kind of the, the exchange that they made. But even though they got a lot of grief for that from the Americans and from the public for not the Catholic Church not standing up and publicly sort of taking a stance against the Nazis— in a way, it allowed them to do some things like what John O'Neill was talking about. So over the course of World War II, the Vatican was actually responsible for saving the lives of over 850,000 Italian Jews. Wow. Yeah. More than any other state or country involved anywhere. So these projects, like what John O'Neill was talking about, this Vatican rescue project, was done all in secret and a Jewish newspaper later after the war actually described it as one of the greatest manifestations of humanitarianism in the 20th century. So think like the U.S., the Underground Railroad, how they kind of had these points set up throughout America and in Canada to get runaway slaves away and to safety. It was very similar. They were The Vatican was responsible for saving the lives of over 850,000 Italian Jews and they used programs like what he was talking about, the North American College, where they had the Jews dressed up like priests. They also had this Casa San Giovanni, which Strake purchased for the Vatican because of his relationship with Montini and Carroll. He purchased this area, and it served as an escape route for Jews and downed Allied pilots. So what this was is this was kind of this vast farmland, and they had sheep, and they had animals, and they had shepherds on there. And so what they actually would do is they would take the Jews or the allied, downed allied pilots, and they would sort of funnel them through Casa San Giovanni and dress them up as shepherds. It's kind of remarkable. And then the other thing, going back to our project, is they actually use the necropolis as a, a hiding place for Jews and for allied pilots during World War II because of this agreement that they had the Nazis never really entered the Vatican, and so it was almost like 
if they could get these persecuted people or these people under attack into the Vatican, they could hide them in the necropolis, and then they could sort of funnel them out through the North American College, dressed as priests, through Casa San Giovanni, dressed as shepherds. I mean, the whole thing is kind of amazing, and it's crazy how all of these people that we're talking about had a role in this, and it's all happening at the same time that World War II is going on, and they're trying to dig for St. Peter's bones. One other thing that I'll talk about is the election of 1948. So in 1943, Eisenhower officially announces the surrender of Mussolini and the Italians. So they're kind of out of the war after 1943. But the communists see Italy as a place where they can establish a foothold in Europe. So remember, you had these fascists who, you know, Italy was was run by the fascists. So the the communists felt like maybe this is a way for us to get in to the government and to really have the people of Italy embrace communism. So in 1948, they are electing the first parliament of the Italian Republic. The communists had just taken over in Czechoslovakia in 1948. And so it almost became, you know, you talk about the Cold War, how you have the the U.S. and the Soviets kind of using these other countries to fight a war. This was like pre-Cold War, but this is trying to stop communism in Italy. And a couple of things that the Catholic Church was involved with is in 1946, 1948, they started what's called the Italian Parish Church Project. And Strake is actually a funder of this as well. I'm telling you, this guy puts money into everything. When he wrote a blank check, he really wrote a blank check, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Over the course of those two years, they built 38 family-oriented Catholic churches in Rome and throughout Italy really to counteract the communists. The linchpin of this was San Filippo Neri in Garbatello, which is a neighborhood in in Rome. But there's this phrase, it's kind of like a bellwether county. You know, as Garbatello goes, so goes Italy. They really felt like Garbatello was representative of the rest of the country. And so San Felipe Neri is an example of this idea of if people have somewhere to go and build community that's not sponsored by the state, which, you know, previous to this was fascist, and now they're trying to create communists, then maybe they will resist and sort of embrace this idea of we need to watch out for each other and we need to protect each other and we need to come together as a community and fight off the communists and fight off, you know, other future fascists. And so in 1948, they're victorious. They win by a landslide, actually. But it was some of these projects that were funded by Strake, that were presented by the church, that were really kind of pivotal in the rest of the history. Because you you can imagine the communists, they have Czechoslovakia, but they're trying to get into Italy. If the Italian government had gone communist, that would have been like a major foothold into the rest of Europe and would have put a lot of pressure on England and France and Germany, Switzerland, all of these places that were able to remain democratic in nature and resist the communists and kind of keep the communists kind of restricted to the Soviet Union and the countries around there. Like a big wall. Yeah, exactly. So these are amazing humanitarian projects, but we're doing a podcast, of course, about finding Peter's bones. We haven't found them yet. When do they go back and start the search again? Great question. And they never really stopped the search. They just had these other things that they were doing in addition to them. Remember when I said they were doing a, a really hard job poorly? Well, that hard job continued, but... There were some wins, and a couple of these wins are, in 1942, Koss, you know, remember him, Monsignor Ludwig Koss, 
He's in charge of the project. Well, he was kind of cut out by Ferua. There was a lot of going back and forth there. But he would go in and he would kind of pick up some of the things that he felt were important. And one of these things he picked up was this kind of pile of bones underneath this wall with a bunch of inscriptions, put it into a box and saved it for later. But the big win of the 1940s is that in 1950, Father Ferua actually presents Pope Pius XII with the announcement that they found St. Peter's bones. They found them in this tomb and in this mausoleum, not exactly where they thought they were going to be, but close by. And everybody was convinced that these are the bones of St. Peter. And so in 1950, Pope Pius XII announces that they found St. Peter's bones. So if this was a secret project, why did he kind of rush to announce? Yeah, so he wasn't planning to. A member of the Italian media actually found out somehow that this whole project is going on. And before kind of blowing the lid on it all, gave them the opportunity to come clean about it. And so in 1950, they said, okay, yeah, we found the bones. We were successful. We've been doing this all in secret. You didn't know it. And so they announced it. And so in 1951, Strake comes to Rome with his family, and he's not really honored because he didn't want that, but he was part of the celebration of finding St. Peter's bones. We also, around the same time in 1950, we lost Father Walter Carroll. The dude was a boss, and he could not ever slow down. So all the work that he was doing, right, like the saving the Jews, being part of the parish project, being part of this excavation, traveling from America to Italy. Carol actually was responsible for taking secret messages back and forth between Pope Pius XII and the U.S. government and the president. And all of this really did take a toll on him. He kept getting sick. They kept telling him, you need to stop. He wouldn't. And so in 1950, he did unfortunately pass away. And then a couple years later, we lose somebody else. In 1952, Koss dies and Pius orders that he's also buried in the Acropolis, which he's one of the only non-popes that's buried in the Acropolis, which is actually pretty cool. Around 1952, though, we have somebody else come onto the scene. So Ferua is really expecting that he's going to be appointed head of the excavation when Koss dies. He's the one that's been doing all the work. He's the one that's been in charge. He's the one that's, heck, found St. Peter's bones. But that's not what happens. Somebody else comes onto the scene, and in that moment that they do, this person tells Pope Pius, um, you know those bones that you have that you announced a couple years ago that were the bones of St. Peter? I think you got the wrong guy. What? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. That is crazy. So if they found the wrong guy, what do they do next? I mean, what, what's next in this? Uh, that's where the story gets really interesting. But you're going to have to come back next episode to find out. Can't wait. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) This conference is well worth the entire experience, especially for the faithful looking to build the body of Christ. That's what one ministry director said after attending the Petrus Development's RAISE conference in 2023. A fundraising staff member from a different organization had this to say, I have several years of experience fundraising, and I found the conference applicable to me. I also saw new-to-fundraising people getting a lot out of it, too. There is literally something for everyone here. In 2024, RAISE, the Catholic Fundraising Conference, will be even bigger and even better. Join us on the Riverwalk in San Antonio, Texas, June 24-26, through 2024. RAISE 24 will feature outstanding speakers, 
great networking opportunities, and an authentically Catholic conference experience. Registration is open now. Learn more at PetrusDevelopment.com slash Raise24. That's PetrusDevelopment.com slash Raise24. Many people described her as the Italian Molly Brown, totally undeterred, unwavering, and unsinkable. She was one of the first prominent female archaeologists and epigraphists who dedicated her life studying and understanding ancient mysteries and events. An Italian Molly Brown? Who are you talking about, Matt? None other than Margarita Garducci. Thanks a lot, guys, for introducing this amazing person in the story of the Apostle Project. Margarita Garducci is, I think that calling her the Italian unsinkable Molly Brown is kind of perfect. She just epitomizes this role of, I'm not really interested in all the stuff around it. I just want the truth. Uh, I have no agenda. I have no bias. Just give me the facts or give me the direction, and I'm going to drive this train until I can figure out what the truth is. And so that's really what she does. So we ended last episode talking about who replaces Koss as the head of the excavation. Well, now you know, it's Margarita Garducci. So this is kind of shocking because I think everybody would think that Faru would be the next one in yeah. line. Yeah, and I get the impression that Farua thought the same thing. So Garducci is an expert in the field of epigraphy. So you're probably wondering what the heck epigraphy yeah, is, what right? Is, what is that? <laughs> yeah. So I think Ren is, uh, he's got this on lock. Definitely. So epigraphy is the study of inscriptions or epigraphs as writing. So it's basically the decoding of things like graphemes and hieroglyphs and their use according to the dates and the cultural context that in which they were you know, put wherever they are to help understand both what the writing is about and the people who did the writing. Mm. And so Guarducci established herself as an authority in this field by deciphering something called the Gortian Code, which is this huge wall full of uh, legal codes on the island of Crete. So one of my favorite authors is Dan Brown, and this is really starting to <laughs> favorite sound... Favorite author? Yeah, one of my favorite authors, yeah, is Dan Brown. Oh, wow. Hey. I just learned a lot about you, Matt. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just joking. So, but this reminds me of that, like the story behind that. You, Dan Brown could almost write a book about what she does for a living. Yes. she. This is pretty fascinating stuff. In order to be a epigraphist, you have to be like part archaeologist, right? Part digger. You have to be part detective. And you have to be really willing to go where the information leads you and figure out what these codes mean. Yeah, and I think your reference to the Da Vinci Code is pretty spot on. But that's how Garducci kind of establishes herself, is this work that she does in Greece and really becoming an authority on inscriptions and epigraphy. Now, one interesting note that Garducci is not Catholic at this time. We don't know if she had some earlier connection to Catholicism, but she's certainly not practicing. And so you got to wonder kind of how she gets this job. There's an interesting quote from that John O'Neill shared with us that... George Strake was still advising on the project, right? He still knew Pope Paul VI, and Pope Paul VI's family actually knew Garducci. And so Pope Paul may have actually gone to George and said, George, you know, I've got this problem. This person left. I need the best person for the job. And 
George Strake says, well, then you got to go find the best person. Kind of like he did with Eastman. Remember when he had drilled a diagonal drill to solve that fire? It's kind of the same thing. You got to go find the right person, find the best person for the job. And Pope Paul probably was like, well, it's a woman and she's not a Catholic. (laughs) And Strake, you know, to his credit was probably, well, you got to get the right person. Doesn't matter if that's the right person. And so anyways, all of this kind of goes together to really almost kind of put Farua in, I mean, in my mind, you know, Farua gets a lot of grief, right? But in my mind, he kind of is in a no-win situation, right? Like he's been working on this project. He doesn't think he's been doing a, a bad job. He's been, you know, setting up to take the lead on it. And then, you know, somebody else is picked and it's not even somebody from the Vatican. It's not a man, which in his mind is, you know, kind of a big problem. And it's not a Catholic. And so, you know, does he fight it? And is he upset about it? Yeah, absolutely. But in some regard, like, <laughs> I'd almost be more shocked if he, like, welcomed her with open arms and, you know, says, hey, I'm glad to have a new boss. So, anyways. I wonder if there is a piece of it, too, that she came in and said he didn't find it, but he had thought himself, they're already found. Why Why are yeah. we bringing somebody else in now? Yeah. I've and, already found him. Right, exactly. I mean, that's a good point. He probably also feels a little threatened, though, that she's she's going to come in and you know say, you didn't get it right. Which, spoiler alert, that's what happens. First thing she does is she kind of shuts down all the digging that's going on and says, look, things have not been done correctly. Nothing's been cataloged. Photographs have not been taken. Everything that's in here, this all needs to either come out or be be assigned to, you know, if it's not movable, it needs to be put in the right place. And we need to get documentation about this because that wasn't really happening. Koss was trying to, but Farua was really just like laser focused on we got to find the bones and everything in his way was just insignificant in some ways. So everything slows down and then Garducci basically just starts cataloging and studying everything. And she also brings in somebody who's really important to the process, Professor Venerando Carinti of the University of Palermo, who is an expert in the field of anthropometry. You guys know what that is, right? I have no idea. (laughs) Okay. So it's a systematic measurement of the physical properties of the human body. So, you know, you probably think, all right, well, you know, what good is that? It's really important in the areas now of clothing design ergonomics, and even architecture. So how does the body work? How does the body fit together? What kind of bone structure do you need to support certain weight? Basically, like if you want somebody to look at bones and figure out what that body looked like with skin and muscle and fat on it, Carinti was kind of the dude to do it. So he comes in and he starts studying everything. And in 1956, at the request of Pope Pius XII, he starts looking at these bones that Ferua said are St. Peter's bones. Let's call these the red wall bones because that's what they were found in the red wall. Nobody's really happy, Ferua especially, with what Carinti finds. Essentially, he determines that it, this pile of bones was not St. Peter. The reason that he figures out it's not St. Peter is because it's actually the bones of four different individuals. It's two men in their 50s, it's a man in his 40s, and it's an elderly woman in her 70s. Holy moly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So not great. And it all kind of falls apart that these are the right bones. We found the bones. Now, unfortunately, this is 1956. Unfortunately, just two years later, 1958, Pope Pius XII dies. And I think this is 
really tragic because like he's been focused on this for essentially his entire papacy and he dies not knowing that the work was complete. So the work does continue though. Garducci's in charge, but at this point she doesn't really have any strong allies, right? Like Father Carroll's dead, Koss died, McGuff is gone, Montini is now the Archbishop of Milan. Strake is still involved. He's still funding it, but he's in America and he comes over every two or three years. It's not really like she's got a lot of allies, but she's the Italian unsinkable Molly Brown. She just continues. She's going to keep focusing on the study regardless of who's helping her out. So that's 1958. In 1962, Garducci presents some other bones to Professor Corinti with the idea that maybe these are St. Peter. So why did she think these are the bones and what bones were they? So remember how Koss found this small pile of bones underneath in a little niche underneath a wall with a number of inscriptions? That's right. So Garducci, when she comes in, she kind of focuses in on that wall, which ultimately is called the graffiti wall because it's got a lot of inscriptions on it over the centuries. But there's an inscription on there that is really important to her. And it's after she figures out the code, right? Because it's not just written out in plain English or even plain Latin, but she figures out and it says, Peter is here. And immediately under that inscription on the ground is where these bones were found, where Koss finds them. And so Garducci takes these bones, gives them to Carinti, who's this expert on bones at this time, and says, can you study these and figure out if these are St. Peter's bones? And maybe just, can you study these and figure out whose they are? So that's what Carinti does. So he starts studying the bones. And, and this is in 1962. 1963, Montini, remember one of the three amigos, is elected Pope Paul VI. So now he's back in charge, or he's back you know, in the papacy. Garducci has that ally again. And then 1964, Carinti reveals the findings of his report, gives it to Garducci, and they share it with the Vatican. And I think that everybody's going to be pretty happy with this report. What did it say? Basically, in this report, Carinti confirms that the bones in the niche under the graffiti wall are the bones of St. Peter. So how could they possibly have determined that? Okay, so there's, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight points of confirmation. All right. So first is the age of the bones. They know, they don't do carbon testing, but they look at some of the details around the bones, where they were found, which I'll reveal later, what they were wrapped in, and then where they were stored. They determined that these bones were undoubtedly from somebody who was born and died before 250 AD, which remember in in the 300s is when they built the old St. Peter Basilica, right? So that's the first thing. Age of the bones, they know where they're from. Body type. Peter was known to have died in his 60s or his 70s, and he was a robust male, and that's what these bones check out to be. Remember, Carinti is the expert on this. Like, what kind of bones does it take for a certain body type? So he knows for sure that these are the bones from a 60 or 70-year-old male who was a robust man. Number three is they're missing their feet. And they know that they're missing their feet and their feet are chopped off. Why is that important? Okay, so remember how St. Peter died? He was crucified? Well, how was he crucified? He was crucified upside down. Right. And whenever somebody was crucified upside down, the simplest way to get them off the cross was, what can you imagine? Just cut them off. Cut the feet off, right? So it was very common for, for people that were crucified upside down when they were buried to be missing their feet. 
and these bones indicated that the feet had been cut off, and so that's another indicator that this is St. Peter. The fourth is St. John Lateran, which is another basilica in Rome. Tradition held from long time ago that the skull of Peter and Paul were both buried under St. John Lateran in a tomb there. Well, around this time, they checked that tomb and they confirmed that the bones that were there were only from one male. Later, they confirmed that it was St. Paul, but that clue indicates that it's not St. Peter, right? Because if it's only one and that's not St. Peter, then it can't be that St. Peter's skull was buried there. Interesting. So five is gold and purple cloth. And looking at the bones, they can identify that they've got this stain. And what the scientific tests reveal is that that stain actually came from being wrapped in purple and gold cloth, which you remember from the Romans, what did they use purple and gold for? Royalty, important people. Exactly. So that means that if the Christians found these bones, wrapped them in gold and purple cloth, it wasn't just an ordinary person. It wasn't an ordinary martyr. It had to have been somebody of significant importance and either royalty or nobility. So that's another clue. Six is location. These bones were originally buried in the dirt underneath the trophy of Gaius, which is where tradition held when they built the initial St. Peter's. The trophy of Gaius is this mausoleum tomb, and that's where tradition held that the St. Peter was initially buried. And the original tomb was marley sand, while other parts of the Vatican area were different. They were blue, clay, or yellow sand. Well, what kind of dirt remains do you think they found on these bone fragments? I'm going to just take a shot in the dark here and say it's marley sand. (laughs) Thank you. That's a huge leap. You remind me so much of George Strait, the Wildcatter. Like major risk going out on a limb. Yes, yes, yes. They were. Uh, they it was Marley Sand. So then they knew that these were originally under the trophy of Gaius. They were moved here, which then holds with tradition that that's where they were initially buried. Seven is that inscription. Peter is here. Garducci found that, and that's a pretty good indicator that somebody believed that they're there. And then the final confirmation, number eight, is that before this got published, they sent this report out to five different experts, three archaeologists and two specialists in Greek epigraphy, no relation to the project, no relation to the Vatican, and all five of them came back and said what? Confirmed. Confirmed, yes. So now you have your eight points in this 1964 report that they found the bones of St. Peter under the graffiti wall in the niche. I've got a guess, and again, I'm I'm pulling a, a George Strake here and and uh, going out on a limb, yeah. and say that Ferrua was not very happy with this report that Garducci threw out there. Yes. So 1965, the report goes public, and as you would expect, Ferrua immediately begins attacking everything. There were some mouse bones found in the box that uh, the bones were stored in for many years in storage. And so they used that as, as a claim that these are not the right bones because there were mice in there, which they were stored in storage for many, many years. It wasn't super secure, so a mouse climbed in there and died. He also he uses this line that Garducci is really just this super religious fanatic woman who lets her emotions take over and really doesn't use science to justify this and is really driven by this, which is totally insane because when this all started, Garducci wasn't even a practicing Catholic. It was through the study of the tomb that actually she began practicing 
her Catholic faith and was drawn into this faith, but that wasn't the motivator of why she would say that these were St. Peter's. Nothing to do with that. The fact that she was a woman was just really Ferua throwing shade because this was the 1960s and there weren't many females in the field of archaeology and really science at that time. And so just to stop you for for a second, because this stuff is fascinating, but I fear that if we defend too much on, on exactly what was right and what was wrong and how do we know and how do we not know that this season might turn into a, a, v- a very long season for us. But I think there's... Are you telling me to just wrap it up here, Matt? Uh, is that I'm, not like say, a... I, I'm not saying that, <laughs> okay. Andrew, but, but there is some some resources that you use that somebody yeah. who wanted to, to look up yeah. all this and, and find this fascinating yeah. can go a lot deeper. Great point. So there's two really great books. There's Bones of St. Peter, which was written by Margarita Garducci. I mean, go read that. It's a very technical read, but it explains all of this. And then there's, of course, the source that we use, Fisherman's Tomb by John O'Neill, which is a fantastic book. It's very fun to read. And he's got 185 pages to go into more detail about some of this stuff. Yeah, I definitely recommend going and checking those out. So Ferua attacks Garducci, right, and really rallies the scientific community around that. That being said, Paul VI in 1968 does publicly say that we can consider convincing that these bones are the bones of St. Peter. They take the bones, they put them into a niche, they put them behind glass, so they're part of the tour if you go down into the necropolis. 1969, we lose the hero of our story, who we'll talk about again next episode, but George Strait passes away in 1969 while he's driving from Columbus, Texas, back to Houston. His car breaks down, and this man of immeasurable wealth decides that he doesn't want to inconvenience anybody else, literally gets out of his car and starts pushing it up a hill, has a heart attack and passes away. So we lose our hero, but his legacy continues, and we'll talk more about that next episode. 1978, Pope Paul VI dies, and immediately, you can guess, Garducci is fired. At this time, they actually remove the bones the Vatican overrules Pius, said that he was misleaded by a radical zealot woman, and it goes back into mystery that they found St. Peter's bones. Really kind of crazy turn of events here in 1978. So why do you think that Ferua staged such an aggressive fight to get Graducci kind of disproven? I would hate to think that it's just because he's hurt that she got the job over him, right? But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that that seemed to be kind of the catalyst that he really rallied around somebody saying he was wrong and somebody else saying that she was more qualified than him. There's two sides to every story, right? And it's hard to really understand why. But, you know, I mean, from Farua's standpoint, you know, going back to Koss, he would sneak in at night and pick up all these bones that they found and pick up these things that they skipped over and take them into storage. You know, and so that's Koss saying that Farua did a bad job. Well... <laughs> That, you know, from Ferua's standpoint, Koss is kind of a meddler who's coming in and doing the work that they were planning on doing and just getting in the way, right? So you got to imagine that Ferua is upset with Garducci, but also, you know, in his mind, it's justifiable. I don't know. You guys have any other thoughts? You know, I have a question, you know, and I don't want to defend Ferua because looking at the science, it's undoubtedly, in my opinion, that Garducci's right, Ferua's wrong. But I wonder in this situation if he was so convinced, I, I keep coming back to that, that he was so convinced before Garducci even came in that he found the bones, that no matter what anybody else said, 
he was just unwavering in his belief that he had already found him, that yeah. there's nothing else. And so maybe it was an ill intent. I'm going to go out on a limb there. Maybe it wasn't ill intent against Garducci, but maybe it was more the fact that he just couldn't be dissuaded from this thought that he was the one who found it. And those were the bones. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to give him the more charitable benefit of the doubt like you, but I, my reading of it is that I can't quite do that. The whole process, it feels like he is searching for glory, right? Like from the beginning, he pushes Casa out of the way and says, even though Casa's in charge of the project, he doesn't really let him into the excavation. He's leading the excavation. He doesn't give him reports. He's not telling him what they're doing. He's not even allowed on the site during the day in, in most cases. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just a charge to where approximately where they think the bones will be. We find some bones. These are it. I'm the winner. This is the trophy. Anybody who says otherwise, I'm going to tear down and hold a grudge against mm. for the next decades and decades, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the eight points of confirmation that Garducci and Carinci had, really, from Ferua's standpoint, on the red wall bones... He had one point of confirmation, and it was, well, they're in the spot that we thought that they were going to be, right? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. So, Garducci's fired, Mm -hmm. but it seems like she's almost in the prime of her research. What does she do next? Yeah, so, like I said, she's the unsinkable Italian Molly Brown. She just puts her heads down, finds more projects, and keeps working. One of the greatest icons of Poland is... The icon of Our Lady of Chesticawa, which is commonly known as the Black Madonna of Chesticawa. This is something that has been associated with Poland for the last 600 years, but nobody knew the origin. Nobody knew where this icon originally came from. And it was Garducci who used all the clues and used all of her intelligence and all of her experience to really ultimately identify where the origin of the Black Madonna of Chesticawa is and really kind of bring a lot of honor to that icon and to the Polish Catholic Church. If you're wondering kind of how important this is, many Polish Catholics make a pilgrimage there every year. And when Pope John Paul II was a student during World War II, he actually made a secret pilgrimage to see the Black Madonna, which just shows kind of how important it was. He was willing to risk his life. So that was in 1990. Also in 1990, Margarita Garducci is invited to speak at the University of Milan. And she's there discussing all sorts of things. But Federico Ziri, who is an Italian expert on antiquities, is there as kind of the host moderator of the event. And at that presentation at the university, Garducci kind of like just lays it all out there and lets Ferrua have it. And, you know, this is 1990. So she's been, this is you know, 12 years after she was fired, many years after Pope Pius confirmed that these are the right things. And she's kind of been like pushed to the side and really disregarded by certainly the Catholic archaeology community. But she lays it all out there. She makes her case for why these are the right bones. And Frederico Ziri, who has really no skin in the game, says, you know, I think you're right. Publicly, he says it on stage. I think you're right. Margarita Garducci, I think you found the bones of St. Peter. So, 1999, Garducci dies. 2003, Ferrua dies at the age of 102 years old, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Say what you will about Ferrua, but that dude was a workhorse. He worked until he was 90 years old in the Vatican and never really gave up the fight to find and track the mysteries and, you know, sort of the stories and the relics of, of the church. So, Ferrua dies in 2003. In 2009, something else happens that isn't necessarily connected with the story, but it paves the way. 
Pope Benedict confirms the authentic remains of St. Paul that were found in the tomb under St. John Lateran. So what Pope Benedict says is, this confirms the unanimous and uncontested tradition that these are the mortal remains of the Apostle Paul. So again, we've got kind of two main leaders of the church from, you know, all the way back in the first century, Peter and Paul. And it wasn't until 2009 that they recognized that they had the right bones of St. Paul. And then in 2013, remember, we started this whole story off with Pope Francis coming out to the Logia and cradling a box of bone fragments. Well, that is where we are now. Pope Francis finally recognizes these are the bones of St. Peter, our first pope, the rock upon whom the church is built, and he returns these bone fragments to the graffiti wall niche where they were originally found. So you're saying that both the remains of Paul and Peter were confirmed and publicly declared in 2009 and 2013. Sounds like that would have been an exciting time to be alive and be Catholic, and there'd be lots of excitement about it. And we all were alive. <laughs> Did any of you hear about any of this? And, and we were adults. It wasn't like we were little kids to forget it. Practicing Catholic. Should, should we be like horribly embarrassed or like, I don't know. Yeah, it, I don't know. It's pretty wild though. I will say that as a result of taking this project on though, reading the fisherman's tomb, going into research about this, uh, about these people, about George Strake, of course, but now about Ferua and Garducci and Koss and Pius the sixth or Pius the twelfth and Paul the sixth. I cannot believe that this is not a Hollywood movie. Like I, I genuinely can't. There are so many twists and turns and amazing characters and people and storylines. Like this is a ready-made movie, and so hopefully at some point that happens. And if it does, I hope we get to see it. That it's advertised a little more than the actual findings were. Oh, what if we're brought in as like uh, advisors on the project? You hey, know, and, that's a great idea. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Reach out to services. us Instagram. So if you <laughs> if you own <laughs> if you own a, a movie production company and you're thinking about writing a story about this, give us a call. Holy Donors team would love to help you out. Okay, so you're right, Matt, and you're right, Ren. But there was a news story, so let's listen to the clip. And at the Vatican, a first for the faithful, bones believed to be those of St. Peter, displayed publicly for the first time. Pope Francis held the remains at Sunday service. The mass at which they were displayed for the first time marked the end of the year of the faith. One reason they were kept hidden for so long is an ongoing debate over whether or not the bones really are St. Peter's. Scientific tests conducted on the nine bone fragments, now resting in a jewel box inside a bronze case, showed only that they belonged to a robust man who died in his 60s. No pope has definitively declared that they do belong to St. Peter, but in 1968, Pope Paul VI said they had been identified in a way we believe to be convincing. So we just heard this fantastic tale uh, that we, you know, would make a great movie, funded by an amazing man who has done amazing things. He was and, amazing. And he wanted nothing in return. He didn't want any recognition. He wanted nothing in return. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to accomplish and make it to the finish line, which was to find Peter's bones, mm -hmm. which were later confirmed after his death. Would you consider the finding of Peter's bone in this, this journey, maybe the greatest legacy that of George, George Yeah. Of George Strait. Yeah. So, so that's a good question. I think it's a fair question. I would say that these were 
part of his legacy that we're going to talk more about in the next episode. Can't wait. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Do you dream of having a thriving fundraising program, but you find yourself stranded without the funds to set sail? Or are you a new fundraiser trying to make sense of how all the activities in a development office fit together? Well, your solution has arrived. It's time to embark on a transformational voyage with basic online advancement training, or BOAT, from Petrus Development. Picture this, a 10-week online course meticulously designed to equip you with the essential knowledge, strategies, and support needed to build a thriving fundraising program from the ground up. With BOAT, you won't just scratch the surface. You'll dive deep into 12 expertly crafted modules that take you step-by-step through the process of building your fundraising program. You'll have weekly cohort calls led by an experienced fundraising coach to guide you through implementation of the foundational elements of a development program. But don't just take our word for it. Listen to what Patty Connors from St. Thomas More Newman Center at Ohio State University had to say. Wow, there is nothing basic about BOAT. It encompassed every aspect needed for a successful advancement plan. The program is simply fantastic. Don't hesitate to start. It will be the best decision you ever make for your ministry. By the end of your journey, you won't just have theoretical knowledge. You'll have a practical, customized blueprint for your organization's fundraising success. So don't miss the boat. New cohorts set sail in January 2024. Enroll now and chart your course towards a brighter, more impactful future. Visit PetrusDevelopment.com slash boat today and let's navigate this transformational journey together. George Jr. used to be afraid because he would give everything away. And he'd say, Dad, what are you going to do if you just run out of money? His father would say, well, my hope is that I can give away with my last breath, my last dollar. And so... George Jr. would say, well, Dad, what are you going to do if you give it all away too soon? And then you're broke. I mean, he was terrified that they would overgive everything and and that there wouldn't be anything left. There are very few people that I've I've ever known that were sacrificial givers like George Trey. That was a great conversation we had with O'Neill that just kind of opened the window into George Strake and his philanthropic giving. But if you remember right, I ended last episode asking you a question that you left me hanging on, Andrew. Thank you for that. And that was, do you consider the Apostle Project to be George Strake's greatest legacy? So Strake, like I mentioned, he died August 6, 1969 in Columbus while on a trip to San Antonio. He's currently buried in the Garden of Gethsemane Cemetery in Houston. But while he was alive, he kept a quote by Michael Benedum, a famous oil man and philanthropist on his desk. And the quote said, God doesn't care how much money you have when you die. God cares what you did with that money while you were alive. So you asked about, is this his greatest legacy? Let's just think about it. George Strake was in the top, certainly in the top 10, top five, who knows, wealthiest Americans when he found the Conroe oil fields back in the 1930s, right? And he gave the money away as he was making it. <laughs> he didn't like save all of his money till the end. I mean, he literally kept a, a random bank account in Pittsburgh 
full of cash for a priest who was using it to, A, find the bones of the first pope of the church, and B, save over 850,000 Jews from persecution and death from the Nazis. Like, (laughs) I mean, that was just one project that he was part of. So we will never, and this is by his design, we will never know what all he supported. But I think his legacy, the public facing, yeah, I mean, that's the most dramatic thing that he funded was finding the bones of St. Peter. His legacy, though, as we remember it, and for those who know him and those who know about him, is really that he gave away as much money as he possibly could, and it still wasn't enough. He still wanted to support more causes. He still wanted to have a bigger impact. And so I think, like John O'Neill was saying, just the fact that he was so sacrificial in his giving, that's his legacy, and that's what people can kind of grasp onto and learn from. So we know we funded the Apostle Project. We found that out years later, basically because his son told John O'Neill, and John O'Neill went and wrote (laughs) the book. Do we know of other things that he did fund for sure? Yes, we do. And the things that I have are, it's a pretty good list. Okay, so Strake was a huge benefactor of St. Joseph Hospital, which in 1966, uh, he and his wife gave a half a million dollars for medical research and education, and they actually named a hospital wing after him after he had already passed away. Strake was the largest funder of the U.S. Catholic Charities, which supported many Jewish POWs in World War II. He joined the board of Catholic Charities in 1940. He supported a lot of Catholic organizations. He also supported a lot of non-Catholic causes and things that he was passionate about, like Boy Scouts of America. And so in 1943, he donated several thousand acres near Conroe to the Boy Scouts, and this land is called Camp Strake. It's the third largest scout camp in the United States. I'm very familiar with Camp Strake because I was in the Boy Scouts in Houston, and every winter we would do winter camp at Camp Strake. And as much as I appreciate George Strake and as much as I love his generosity, those were some miserable nights (laughs) camping out in December in the woods of Conroe. They were certainly great memories, and I really appreciated that, but golly, I remember how cold it was. Goodness gracious. So George Drake was also a very generous contributor to University of St. Thomas in Houston, Catholic school there, and he was a member of the Board of Trustees. He saved a Jesuit college prep school in Houston, which was about to close, and in honor of him saving it, they renamed it Strake Jesuit, which is one of the most well-known and well-respected Catholic high schools in all of America. He was on the board of the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, and served Our Lady of the Lake College, which is now Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio, as an advisor as well. And he also served on the Board of Governors for the American National Red Cross and the Southwest Research Institute, and was a trustee of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. He was cited as the most generous contributor to the Houston-Harris County United Funds Charities. And remember where he went to school, St. Louis University? They've always had a really great library. But when Pope Pius XII died in 1958, George Strake donated $350,000 to create microfilms of over 1 million books and manuscripts that were currently in the Vatican, which now uh, it was listed as the largest humanities project in history at the time. And President Eisenhower 
even sent a note to the president of the university saying the establishment of the Pius XII Memorial Library will interest millions of Americans for these collections are one of the world's primary sources of information of Western thought. Access to it will be immensely valuable to all those who wish to delve more deeply into the fundamentals of our civilization. And one other really cool story that we've got a clip on is George always wanted to own a ranch mountain place. And so in the 1930s, he bought a property called Glen Erie, and that's where his family would go and they would spend time together. It was just kind of a very special place to George and to his family. And in 1953, he actually he was listing it for sale and he found out that a group, the Navigators, which is a group associated with Billy Graham at the time, was looking to buy that property and set it up as a camp. And so he basically cut the price in half and sold it to the Navigators. And he had a, a special house on a lake called Eagle Lake. And at the last minute, he dreamt that God was telling him to give the Eagle Lake to the Navigators as well. And so when he showed up at the closing, he actually told them, I'm including the the Eagle Lake as well, even though previously he had said he wasn't going to. Hmm. So let's listen to this clip from John O'Neill. He had a large uh, valley that he owned near Colorado Springs. He had dreamed his whole life about owning a valley like that since World War I. If you ever saw the movie Lost Horizons, it was sort of the way George Drake felt about that little valley. And yet he gave it all away. He gave it uh, completely away to a Billy Graham outfit because he thought that a bunch of kids in the summer using it at the summer camp would be a lot better use for it than, than his family. And that was really hard for him. It was classic sacrificial giving. There's not nearly as much of a sacrifice involved when I give all my money away with my last breath as when I give away things that I actually care about uh, while they make a difference to me. And I think that he was a sacrificial giver. I think he was willing to give away stuff that he really cared a lot about while he was alive. I think that one of the great things about giving is not necessarily what the recipient does with it, but the effect on the person giving it away. And that's why sacrificial giving, the giving away of something that someone would really like to keep is such a noble thing and does so much good in the world. You know, I think that was a really beautiful way to kind of summarize his philanthropic giving and, and what he did and how he felt when he gave, you know, mm-hmm. what, it, what it was like to him to give. But as we know, it goes beyond this. So we, you went through a, a great list of what we know of in his mm-hmm. philanthropic giving, but it goes beyond that to some of the things that he was awarded with from the church. Mm-hmm. What were those? Yes. Yeah, so we remember from earlier that George was very faithful, right? He taught himself how to read and write by studying the Bible. He read his Bible literally every day. He made time for scripture and for reflection his entire life. And he was very interested with the early church. So I got to imagine that like when Carol showed up and said, hey, we need somebody to fund fund this because we think we can find the bones of St. Peter, our first pope. George Shake was probably... I mean, it probably wasn't a lot of arm twisting. <laughs> he was, you know, if he felt like he could make that happen, it was probably going to happen. But yeah, what were some of the honors? So he was decorated from Rome, the Grand Cross of the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre in 1937. He was made a Knight of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta in 1940, similar to John Raskob. The late Pope Pius XII personally decorated him Knight Grand Cross of the Order of St. Sylvester in 1946. 
and made him a supernumerary private papal chamberlain of cape and sword in 1950. So all of those are really the highest, the top of the top in terms of religious accolades and religious honors that the church bestows on, certainly on lay Catholics. The National Conference of Christians and Jews, in which he served as a member of the National Board, honored him in 1950 for outstanding contributions to business, civic, and religious affairs. That's pretty exceptional to get all those honors you know, across <laughs> the world, essentially, right, from the Vatican yeah. and from these national conferences. How did the people locally view Strake? How did they, did they honor him? What, yeah. was, what was that like? Yeah, so Conroe is not the same city that it was before George Strake showed up in the 1930s. It's a bustling town. It's a very active community there. And even as far back as 1957, on June 5th, the city of Conroe honored Strake. This is the 25th anniversary of finding oil by dedicating a monument to him on the lawn of City Hall. And the governor at the time read a proclamation designating that day, June the 5th, 1957, George W. Strake Day in Montgomery County, which... It's kind of cool. I don't have a day named after me, and I mean, probably was at any point in my life, but that's kind of cool. So we just went through this wonderful, extraordinary journey of the life of George Drake Yeah, that really was focused on this apostle project. Right. We talked about some of the things that we know of that he funded, and then there's the things that, of course, we'll never know that he played a part of because that's the way that he gave. Mm-hmm. And we know that he was honored by the church, honored by organizations that he helped throughout his entire life. But as many of our donors go, holy donors, they set something up that will outlast themselves. Did Strake have something similar to this? And and I'm referring to a foundation. Did he set up a foundation? or? Yeah, so there is a Strake Foundation, and the Strake Foundation continues to support Catholic organizations and Catholic causes really worldwide. I think every year they make contributions of somewhere around $3 million to different organizations. They're run by the board is made up of family members and friends of the Strake family over time. But the foundation is great and it's run by his son. But I think that's kind of, you know, when you say he set something up, it's kind of like Raskob where he set up the foundation, but it was really a mechanism for his kids to manage philanthropy and them to learn. It's similar, I think, with the Strake Foundation and just the legacy of his children, right? He's got these three kids, George, Georgiana, and Susan, and all three, the estate wasn't divided up and said, there you go, and take it easy for the rest of their life. There were small gifts that were made to each child as part of their inheritance, but George really didn't want to set them up so they didn't have to work. And so essentially, they're all now self-made, successful people in their own right and continue to live really faithful and generous lives. And you could make a pretty good case that his kids are holy donors in their own right, not giving away dad's money, but giving away their own money that they've made and they've grown as part of their wealth and their success. And now they're giving that away to organizations as well. So there's the legacy of the foundation, sure. But I mean, so much stronger is the legacy of children and grandchildren and the lessons that they've learned. Yeah. So how about the excavation? What, yep. what happened with the, the caverns and everything underneath the Vatican yep. once the excavation was completed? Or is it still ongoing? Or what's, what's the status there? Yeah. So in the book, The Fisherman's Tomb, John O'Neill really talks a little bit more about what you can do now. But it's the most popular tour, uh, most popular 
thing to see in the hottest ticket, I guess I think is how John explains it, is the Scavi tour, which is the tour of the necropolis, the tombs underneath. I've never been. I'd love to go on the Scavi tour, but I can imagine, especially knowing what I know now, but I can imagine, like, can you imagine being there and seeing where the first Pope was buried and seeing those bones and seeing those relics and knowing that these are from 2000 years ago when the church was seen by the emperor as this radical cult that needed to be exterminated. I can imagine that's a pretty spiritual experience. It's got to be one of those highlights of your lifetime moments, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's the latest with the excavation. So as we end every season with one simple question, was George Strake a holy donor? Ren, you want to take a stab at it? This one to me is an easy one. I think absolutely yes. He's a guy who he learned to read by reading the Bible. He kept reading the Bible every day of his life. He went to Mass. He made every effort to keep faith central to his life. He put equal effort into going out there and wild guiding, finding a source of income, and then using that to create a lot of good in the world. I mean, he had that philosophy of, I want to give this away while I'm alive, which is kind of unique. There's not a ton of people that... You hear it once in a while, but not a ton of people who are trying to give away their final dollar before they die. It's just a great mindset for sacrificial giving. It's hard not to be inspired by that. How about you, Andrew? Yeah, this one I'm with Ren. It's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, just fantastic story of generosity, fantastic story of taking a risk. And I don't know if I mentioned on the show or not, but I'm a big fan of Luke 4, you know, put out into the deep and you will catch fish. And that's what he did. He didn't stand on the shore and try to catch fish that came in. He got in the boat, cast out into the deep, and he came up big, both in business, professionally, and then also through his philanthropy and through the support. But, you know, the other thing about that is that we didn't talk about it a lot in this show, but in the book, O'Neill talks about it a lot, that he kind of despised that public recognition for his philanthropy. Never wanted anything named after him, wanted all of his gifts to be anonymous, just an example, he helped to fund these 38 churches in Italy as part of that parish project. And one of them, the parish in Garbatella, has a little plaque that has his name on it. And that's it. You know, like, I mean, just the the impact that he had and just that lack of desire for personal recognition is very clear. You know, I go all the way back to him and that story of his first Western Union job, making $10 an hour as an orphan, living with his nine siblings, and he still made it a point to give 20%, $2 every week to the church. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's not the acts of a holy donor, we probably need to reevaluate our definition. Absolutely. I think it's pretty clear. What about so, you, Matt? Yeah, I, I'm... Of course, with both of you on on this, of whether or not he's a holy donor. You know, I was sitting here with my calculator while you were talking at points, Andrew, trying to figure out, and I just realized that George Strake, up to this point, is probably the wealthiest donor that we have kind of spotlighted. Mm. And uh, with that comes, he gave away more money than anybody else that we have spotlighted, too. So I kind of find that a little fascinating. Mm from it, especially knowing where he came from and where he ended and what he wanted to do with his life, yet he asked for nothing in return. Mm. You wonder these these little connected dots pieces of why it was that George Drake found the Conroe oil fields at a time right before World War II to search for the body of St. Peter, because, I mean, all these connected dots 
have to lead to maybe it was meant to be. Maybe maybe again there's there's somebody pulling the strings that just so happened to make it happen at this moment in time in this moment in history that we're kind of on the tail end of and have gotten to experience a part of it. I I also find that kind of fascinating too. So answer the question, is he a donor? Unequivocally, yes. Is he a holy man? Yes. There's no doubt in my mind on that. So yes, he is a holy donor. Great. Well, that finishes the story. (laughs) Fantastic. It was amazing. (laughs) I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that wraps us up. Our season's over. Um, we're looking at another one coming up, which is uh, kind of exciting. It's one that mm. um, that I took the head. Yeah, you're pretty excited about this. I can imagine. Um, you know, it was it was a legend in the making, and maybe a little controversial. But uh, as we spill the beans, next season's going to be Babe Ruth, the Babe, the Babe, the Great Babe, the Great Bambino, the Colossal of Clout, Colossus of Clout. <laughs> Hi, I'm excited about that. That's going to be a good one. It will be a good one. Tune in. Follow us on Instagram. All that stuff. Fantastic. Well, thanks, guys. Can't wait. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio and Back Row Media. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram, at holydonors. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. When a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood, I got in one little fight and my mom got scared and said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air. How do you find Will Smith in the snow? You look for the Fresh Prince. That's right. <laughs> I had to throw it out there. If you had listened to the outtakes from Danny Thomas season uh, one, you would have heard that joke. I know. Told by you. <laughs> Told by you. I know, but I had to do it again. <laughs> Indef- indefatigable? Indefatigable? Indefatig- indefatigable? 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 That is the word that's going to get me. Do not turn that in mid-recording. <laughs> Woo! So I was messing with that earlier. You do it real slow. It sounds like a whale. Action. Oh, that's me. <laughs> are you, are you, I phonetically. Wait, who said that? <laughs> Where'd that come from? <laughs> Indefatigable. And we're live. Ready? Wow, 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 da, dee, do, dee, da, do, gee, ga, goo, gee, goo. So, Andrew, yo, why can a T Rex not tie his shoes? Because his arms aren't long enough. Because he's extinct. (laughs) Jeez. Because he's dead, dummy. F F F S S T T T All right, guys, I'm ready. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. I'm impressed. You said um, what if you said epigraphus correctly, and you said Garducci correctly? <laughs> are you are you starting to catch on that I um, sometimes struggle pronouncing words? <laughs> no.
So, mm. okay. Sorry, well, I just Jonah. put in a Werther's. I, th- I figured I had another, <laughs> another five or six minutes. minutes. So there were a lot of amazing things that came about through his life. They you were know? amazing, Matt. <laughs> okay, let me take that back. <laughs> there were a lot of extraordinary things that he was able to... <laughs> He was <laughs> <laughs> We've hit that point in the day, no, have we not? Yeah, we're so close. We're so close. <laughs> I'm, I'm like so hoping you just accidentally say amazing. Right now. <laughs> I'm going to lose it. That would be so great. <laughs> and that's a wrap.